0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Peterson Goodwin from DIY Recording Equipment. First of all, let's talk about YouTube a little bit. Lear Cohen, who's the head of YouTube Global Music wrote a piece this week on the YouTube blog about the five observations he's had since he's been there. If you don't know who Lear Cohen is, he used to be the chairman and CEO of Warner Music, and he has a very long history in the music business, and he went over to YouTube about eight months ago. Now, since then, not much has changed in terms of their payouts, but he's talked a pretty good game about it. So the five points are kind of interesting in looking at because you make some sense. In some ways, it sounds a little like propaganda. The first thing he says is subscription to YouTube has been very late, but it is coming. And one of the things that's going to happen with YouTube pretty soon is you're going to see YouTube Red and you're going to see Google Play Music all together in one as one subscription service, which is a step in the right direction. What that will mean is if there's more money made from subscription, then that's more money for the artist as well very good thing there. The second thing is ads and subscriptions can live together. Yeah, that's true because, in fact, that's been the way it's been going on most services. The only thing is most services like Spotify, for instance, that does have the dual tiers, the free tier that's advertising-based and the subscription tier, far and away make most of their money from subscription. And right now, it's just the opposite at YouTube. Most of the money comes from ads. Now there's a lot of money coming in, but not as much is actually trickling down to the artist and record label and publishers, and songwriters. One of the reasons why the split is so, very low, it's fifty five percent to the artist or the copyright holder, and 45% goes to YouTube, where on every other streaming service, it's 70% and above that goes to the copyright holder. Now, his third point is probably the best in that he asked for more transparency so artists and songwriters would know more of what they're making. Right now, it's very, very difficult to figure that out. Why? Well, advertising rates change. Why do they change? They change per season. For instance, more at Christmas when advertisers are looking to advertise more and also depends on the advertiser that you draw. So for instance, if the viewer that you draw is very, very high class and has lots of money and can then get a sponsor like Mercedes, for instance, as opposed to a low end consumer that draws an advertiser like Target, well, you're going to make more on the high-end side than you are in the low-end. So that's why it's very difficult to really understand what's happening. Also, different countries have different rates. So it's really hard to get down to exactly what the payout is. That being said, he said that it's about $3,000 per million. And that seems high by all the accounting I've seen where it's, gee, 1800 and even less than 1000 sometimes per million. If you look at Spotify, for instance, it's more like 7,000 per million. His fourth comment was about YouTube being the biggest discovery engine going, and it's true. Most people go to YouTube not so much to find the song that they like the best, but to get recommendations or they've gotten recommendations from other people about new music and they find it on YouTube first. So that's a really good thing and that's something that hopefully will keep on going. And finally, the fifth thing was about content ID. Content ID is is the system that YouTube has in place for artists and copyright holders to get paid when other people use their music. So, for instance, if you have 10 people that copy your song and use it in their videos, because of content ID, you can actually find out who those people are, and you can send them a notice that will say, look, either let me add advertising to your video, or else you have to stop. So that's actually been a really good thing for artists, and that's one thing that Facebook does not have yet. So one of the reasons artists still like YouTube over Facebook video is the fact that content ID is making them a lot of money. So say what you will about YouTube, their payouts are growing, even though the split, the revenue split, is not nearly as good. And hopefully that's going to change as more and more people subscribe in the coming years. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my Music Mixing Primer course. Go to MixingPrimer.com to learn more. Also, check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to all my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, a powerful online group, and much, much more. Go to HitmakersClub.com to find out all about it. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the fact that I spent time in Cuba last week and it was really interesting. I was in Old Havana as compared to the newer end of Havana, which has a lot of bigger buildings than you would think and is a lot newer than you would think. Old Havana was really great. If you've ever been to Venice, Italy, it has that kind of feel. Of course, minus the canals, there's lots of really big squares, and there's fairly tiny streets that are more like alleyways. That being said, the thing I want to talk about is the music coming from Havana, which was very impressive. I think the most impressive thing was the fact that the level of musicianship is so much higher than you find in other countries, including the United States. I'm talking about the average level, the musicians that you find on the street, the musicians that you find in clubs and in restaurants, and almost every restaurant has some sort of a group there. The second thing is, just about every musician can sing and sing really well, and as a result, Cuban music has a lot of three-part harmony, and this three-part harmony isn't just like questions and answers or... Harmony in the chorus, this is harmony that goes throughout the song, including all sorts of inflections and just things that normally don't get harmonized in American music, for instance. But in Cuban music, it certainly does. And it's really, really outstanding. And the last thing that's really interesting is the fact that the percussion is so strong and solid. In American music, percussion is usually kind of like icing on the cake. It's one of those things where it's like, well, okay, we need something to add motion to the song. Let's add a shaker, let's add a tambourine, something like that. In Cuban music, percussion is at the heart of the music. It takes the place of the drums, and you don't miss the drums at all. Just about every band had a bass player, and they would have a percussionist, and sometimes maybe even two percussionists, one playing bongos and the other one playing some sort of a shaker. One of the things you find is that the musicians that are playing shakers and claves, for instance, the timing is so strong, it's like a drum machine. They're the center of the music, and it's something that we don't see very often in our music in the United States. So, if you ever get a chance to experience Cuban music... I suggest you do so because it's really pretty fantastic. Again, listen to the vocals, listen to the harmonies, which are just outstanding, but also really dig into the percussion because there's much more going on there than meets the ear. My guest today is the founder of DIY Recording Equipment, Peterson Goodwin. Peterson started, like many of us in the business, as a musician, then as an engineer, but then he got interested in the DIY gear forums online. That led to producing his first kit, which was a reamp box, and then the company has grown since then to offer kits for 500 series modules, preamps, direct boxes, and even microphones. I spoke with Peterson via Skype from his office in Philadelphia. What's your background? How did you get into this business?
1: Um, sure. So I'm a, I'm a drummer. I played in bands. Uh, and I had that experience of being in a studio and seeing what the engineer was doing and being like, hey, that looks pretty cool. Or uh, thinking, oh, man, he's really the guy that makes my drums sound the way I want them to sound. It's half the playing and half what he's doing. Um, so that was, was what inspired me to, to get into the recording side. And so I, I interned with him, uh, read some of your books uh, during that process. Um, and then once I branched out and started going freelance, um, as you know, there's it, it a lot of gear investment involved. I didn't have a ton of money, a ton of capital to start a studio. So I started Googling around and found that there were people building stuff. And that was really exciting to me. I don't have any background in electronics or uh, soldering or any of that stuff at all. Um, I just thought, well, I've got way more time than money, so this would be a fun way to, to get some gear going. Um, so I built a couple kits and then, you know, little by little, uh, kind of learned my way around um, the, the DIY stuff. and. It was about uh, four or five years into that process that I started the business.
0: What was the impetus to start a business then? Because it, there's a big jump from learning about electronics and, and building some of your own stuff to selling kits.
1: Right, right. Um, well, I actually started the what's become the business not as a business at all, just as a, a basically a fan website for all this cool DIY stuff I was finding. Um so what I was doing was, you know, obsessively Googling and crawling the forums for all these projects people had put out. But at that time, there was no central source for all these projects. There was no beginners' um, kind of like orientation of what DIY was about, even what tools you needed or what knowledge you needed. Um, so that's I started the website DIYRecordingEquipment.com. In 2010, just as a way to collect all this info I was finding and share it with other people. Um, and then I was, uh, that generated a lot of interest, and people were really thankful to have that resource. And uh, so once I had an audience, and I was still a struggling freelancer, um, I thought, well, I've got this audience, and I've got enough know how to kind of put a kit together. So um, about a year after launching the site, I put together a basic passive reamplifier kit and offered it on the website, and uh, people ordered it. And so then that became my side hustle is doing these kits. Um, and then over time, learned a little bit more, I would make another kit, learn a little more, make a more you know, involved kit. And then eventually, the side hustle became the main gig.
0: Very cool. Well, I have to say, your blog is excellent. The teaching posts, the instructional posts, are wonderful. They're very clear and definitely take a beginner through it. I have a degree in electronics, and I enjoyed what you're huh, what you're trying to do. And I have to say, it was uh, very cool. So congratulations on that. I mean, everything about it. I, you know, I was looking through the, all the posts. I'm thinking, okay, I have to go back to that. I'll get back to that later. Right. Very cool.
1: Right. Oh, thank you so much. That's great.
0: Did the blog come first or was this something else?
1: So the blog, the blog came first and for quite a while that was the extent of it. Um, it was kind of a, a blog slash wiki for all the projects that were out there on the forums.
0: It's very interesting that it seems like the last year or two, or maybe it's just my awareness has been growing in that period. You tell me, but it just seems like the whole DIY industry is flourishing. Is that a correct perception?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I got into it, nobody would have called it an industry. I mean, there were some people making kits, um, Hampton, Seventh Circle Audio. Um, right when I was getting into it, um, KP was starting up, uh, CAPI. Um, so, but nobody would have called it even a a cottage industry, it was really a a forum. It was really a community. It was people making designs and then, for the most part, offering them up on the group DIY forum for free. And then if there was enough interest that somebody would say, okay, well, I'll have some circuit boards made and we'll we'll do a group buy. And that was really the extent of it. Um, So since then, I mean, yeah, in the last two or three years, you know, we easily have a dozen companies now, making kits, um, and so yeah, it's really, and and we even have some bigger companies like Korg and making, selling kits, which is unbelievable.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, SSL has a kit. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, um, so yeah, really, no, your perception's absolutely correct. It's definitely grown some wings in the last few years.
0: What differentiates DIY recording from... Other companies that are doing something similar?
1: Well, I try to keep that perspective I had as a beginner when I first encountered this world. And I was so excited, but also lost and intimidated. And I think that of my background of, of being a musician, first and foremost, without an electronics background is something I try to stay in touch with even even though I'm designing the circuits now and I'm very much immersed in it. Um, I try to differentiate by always keeping in mind that customer, the one who's hot to trot but is just getting started or it doesn't have an electronics background. So we invest a lot of our heart and soul into the assembly guides, into the blog posts, um, We do stuff, I mean, we just spent months working on this really cool tool I'm excited about that shows the circuit board you're building in the browser, and and you can... One thing that's very intimidating to people we found is to get, say, a 500-series circuit board with all these parts they need to populate, and the guide says, populate R1 with a 10K resistor, and great, they can follow the directions, but where's R1? There's 100, you know, 500 parts on this board. So we we invested a bunch of time in building this tool that will is a map to the circuit board and will highlight where things are. So that's the kind of thing that that we try to differentiate on and really invest in um, welcoming newbies into the fold rather than saying, "Okay, here's what we've got. You figure it out."
0: What's your best selling kit? I bet I know. What's your guess? Uh, direct box.
1: Interestingly, it is still the reamp box. Ah, yeah. The very, the very I could have stopped there apparently because that was the first one, it's still the best seller. Um, I'm sure that there are many more DI boxes being bought in the world than reamp boxes, but I think that's part of it is that there are $15 DI boxes out there because of the economies of scale. There aren't 15, there aren't dollars reamp boxes of passable quality out there. So we're still, we can still offer a really great value with a $50 kit
0: on that. When I was still gigging in clubs, and this is in the 70s, there was no such thing as direct boxes. They were all custom made. And only the big studios had them because they made their own or the big sound companies. And there was a magazine way back when, Recording Engineer Producer, which is still one of the the most fabulous magazines, too bad it went away. And they had a circuit for a direct box. So I thought, I need a couple of these, so I'm going to build at least two. So I built them, and of course they specified Jensen Transformers. Where I was, I couldn't get Jensen Transformers. I didn't even know where they were, because Jensen was in California, I was in Pennsylvania. I heard somewhere that you could substitute a certain kind of Radio Shack Transformer which was really small. It was the same impedances. So it kind of worked. It didn't sound nearly as good, obviously, but I made a couple of these things and all of a sudden, so I'm playing in clubs and all of a sudden all the bands that we're playing with says, what's that? Can you make me one? And next thing I know, I'm making these direct boxes for people. Oh, that's funny. And I basically stopped because as you know, you can go down a rabbit hole where all you're doing is that all the time, you know, especially if it's just yourself and it's like, man, I am spending all my time doing this and I can't make that much money out of it, so uh, never mind. But right. But it's kind right. of interesting the way that works, you know, because it, direct box is very easy to make. Uh-huh. But, you know, when you have to drill your own holes in the box and everything, that's what takes the time.
1: Right. You know, that's really. the, exactly, that's the thing. And, and we have a blog post on our website about exactly how to make a direct box. Um, so... Nobody needs to buy our kit, but of course we still sell them because like you said, it's, I mean, especially the metalwork is the thing that is so hard to do at home.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely. Did you have a mentor electronically?
1: That's a, uh, not really. I, you know, what I had was the forums. Uh, I mean, I had a community of people who were really generous with publishing what they knew Or answering my questions on the forums um so i no i didn't have one mentor but uh i certainly would never have gotten to this point without that group diy community being there in the first place
0: well obviously you you make quality gear but it's very easy to not make quality gear and (laughs) You know, from the standpoint that, you know, you, you have to know what parts to include. And when it comes down to it, it's parts and placement. There's a certain mentality that you have to have that takes you onto the side of, of higher quality, it, you know, rather than just building something. How did that come about for you where you, you knew that there's a certain level of quality and actually perceiving that it's there is the first step and the second step is then achieving it. So how did that work for you?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really great way to ask that question. Um, so the the first part, being able to hear whether the quality was there, was the easy part. It was, I mean, that's that was my training. That was my background was mixing and audio and that kind of thing. So um, I had the ears, and I suppose it's a lot like mixing, you know. A lot of people who've been in music for a long time who are just learning to mix, it can be very frustrating because they can hear how it's not what they want it to be. Right. But they just don't, they don't have the tool set or the skills to get it there. And so I was in the same boat with designing gear. And um, I did, even though I didn't have mentors, Mm -hmm. I should say that I've had great collaborators and um, both paid and just purely community collaboration so um, taking for example the um, the color format which is this uh, format we created a few years ago where we boiled down the the circuits that that impart the the majority of color into some of our favorite old devices down into these little circuit blocks that you can plug in and out and and um, I had the vision for that and I had an idea of how to realize it, but I really didn't have the chops, the design chops. So I collaborated with um, a great designer named Link Simpson for a while. Um, he got busy with stuff and then I, I started getting circuit help from Jens youngkerth of ice and Audio. Um, so it's really been, for me, the process has been about knowing what I want to hear and then basically doing whatever it takes to get the design there. And in the past, that involved a lot more just tapping people I knew that were a lot smarter than me with about the engineering stuff um, and then learning what I could from them.
0: Uh, about a month or two, I had Paul Wolf on the podcast. Oh,
1: yeah. Uh-huh.
0: He told me a great story about Transformers. You know, he was at API, and all of a sudden – they were making new API gear that didn't sound the same. And they couldn't mm-hmm. figure out why, because the circuitry was identical. It just couldn't sort right. it out. But it was happening all throughout the industry, and nobody could quite figure out why the gear, even though it was a replicated circuit, wasn't sounding the same. And he said it all came down to the transformers. And what it was was the old transformer manufacturers had gone out of business. The new transformer manufacturers had the same designs, but not quite. And it turns out there was something internal. I don't remember what he said it was, but there was a, a winding or however they wound it, it was different. But nobody realized it until they actually sat down and cut an old one open and a new one open and looked at them side by side. And then they went back to the transformer manufacturers and said, okay, make it like this. When they did that, the sound came back. But he said there was like a two, three year period where nobody could get it right. And they couldn't figure out why. Which is really interesting that that would happen, you know, especially with somebody on that level.
1: Right. I mean, that's part of the the frustration and the magic of being still in the hardware analog realm is that the in in DSP you you have to code everything. You you build it from the from whole cloth. But when you're working with components, the physics are happening whether you know it's going on or not tiny little change in in a component is, yeah, can, can become audible. Uh, yeah, I love that story. It's such a, it's such a great distillation of, of kind of the craziness of working with analog gear.
0: Well, you might want to go back and and have, listen to that if you have a second, because he talks about why Neves sound the way they do. And, you know, he's Mm -hmm. going through all the different manufacturers. I don't even know how we got in the subject, but I'm glad we did. Because yeah. there was a lot of stuff I learned. When I was growing up and starting in my teens, I was building kits, electronics kits. And of course, back then you had Kit, you had Ico, Lafayette. There was another one I can't remember. All out of business now, a long time. But Mm-mm. you could build an amplifier. You could build, you know, whatever you needed, basically. It was all there. Right. The kits were very basic in that they didn't really teach you anything. You had a, you got the parts, you got the schematic and and a little bit of how to, but not, you know, you had to know a little bit, which was good because you're thrown in the water. But the way I understand it was all those companies went out of business for liability issues. Mm -hmm. And what it was, was I guess somebody got hurt building something, miswiring it probably in a power supply, I would imagine. And be- right. because of that, the lawsuits were too, or the threat of a lawsuit was too great, and they all went out of business as a result. How does that affect you these days?
1: Well, um, thankfully, uh, we're we're working with much lower voltages now than Heathkit was because um, we're not using tubes, mm. and for power supplies, we're not using. Um, by the time it gets into the box, it's already been regulated down to a much lower voltage. Um, But my, so my liability insurance underwriters are very curious. They really want to know the maximum voltages of everything we ship out. So I, that's my inference is that there's a certain threshold over which the liability insurance becomes unaffordable and that that's what ate into the margins of those companies and, and made it unsustainable, but now with, yeah, with solid state and with switching power supplies that are self-contained, um, you can, you can do, you yeah. know, all of this, you know, gear without the, um, without the builder ever having to ex- be exposed to anything over 36 volts.
0: Dynaco is another company and they, you'd build a kit and those amps were great. Unfortunately, I wish I still had some, but... <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So it goes. How do you develop products? Is it something like you think um, we could build that or is it by request from your customers or how does that work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, At this point most of the product ideas do come from customers because we get so many emails and social media contacts asking for certain things. So we have no shortage of ideas it's really just about prioritizing them because it takes six months to a year to create something as involved as a 500 series module Um, so it's really just about prioritizing what it is we do build Um, so for example right now we're working on an la4 style optical compressor for the 500 series and we're working on that with a great designer named joel cameron who has his own brand called rascal audio. Oh yeah. Um, and that's one where it's like, you just look at our lineup. One of the big gaps is a compressor. So it's just been a no brainer. It's like, we've got to do a compressor. And then once we started narrowing it down, looking at what else is out there in terms of DIY 500 series stuff, um, we just landed on the LA four as something that was doable. Um, you know, wouldn't be too terribly complex of a kit, but it was also unique and vibey and, and that kind of thing. So that was the process for determining what to build. And then Joel and I work on the circuit, and then there's a six-month or so process of building it, ordering prototypes, tweaking, going back to the drawing board, um, you know, ironing out all those tiny details of which op amps do we use, how do we position this knob, how bright should the LEDs be, should the, should the gain reduction meter be a bar or dot, so that, those kind of decisions. You can't imagine how much hand wringing there is over each one.
0: Do you have trouble getting parts? Do you ever worry about that?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's we're all on borrowed time with through hole Parts. And for people listening at home, um, there are basically two kinds of electronics parts. Through-hole parts that you bend the leads and they stick through the board and then you solder them to the bottom of the board. And that's what most of us that do DIY are used to. Um, but the wave of the future, really the present, is surface mount parts where um, they just sit on the top of the board. And then the whole board gets put in an oven that melts them all to the board and uh, those are great because a robot can place them really quickly without bending any leads, but they're not so fun to solder by hand. And, but that's the way industry is going, and, and through hole parts will eventually be uh, go the way of the dinosaur. So always, you know, thinking about and, and what to do, but for the moment, as long as there are these kind of military contracts and old devices out there that need to be serviceable, through-haul parts will stick around, but things are always disappearing, especially something like where you want to get really specific about it. Like, oh, I really want this op-amp because it sounds perfect here. It could be gone next year in through hole It could be surface-mount only. Mm. Wow. So, that's, yeah, that's definitely happened to us several times.
0: Who is your customer?
1: We have quite a range, um, all the way from you know people who just have a two-channel setup in their bed bedroom and need a reamping box all the way up to people who you know produce the biggest acts in the world and um but our core our bread and butter is is really the home recording people um, who have some sort of modest setup and are, are looking to take it to the next level with some analog gear um for the most part um it's people with little to moderate electronics experience um many 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 of our customers are first-time builders where they buy a soldering iron just to build the first kit with us and then based on our repeat customer rate often get the bug because it is such an addictive experience once you build something and then plug it in and oh my god it passes audio and it sounds good Um, And then when people come into the studio, you can tell them, Oh yeah, that thing. Yeah. I I built it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Right.
1: So that's, yeah, that's our, our really our core.
0: What's the age range.
1: That's a good question. I, I mean, 18 to 18 and up. Um, we've had a, there was a 10 year old who I, I taught a soldering course at, um, Ronan, Chris Murphy's retreat a couple months back. And, uh, There was a 10-year-old who built our Poltec-style passive EQ kit, and it worked off the bat. So I think that's the youngest documented uh, customer.
0: Okay, so what's your customer service like? Because I would imagine you would have more customer service calls than a normal manufacturer.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's a a big part of what I do, and I still do that personally, is the the, um, support. Um, because it is such an important part of, of the business. And it's such a, we want people to know that when they buy a kit, they're not on their own. If if they build it and they plug it in and it doesn't work or it's, God forbid, there's smoke comes out or something. Um, we want them to know that they can, they can call us up or they can email us and we'll figure it out. You know, it's just, I always like to say, just to put people at ease when they email us, like, it's just primitive analog electronics. Like, there's nothing here we can't figure out. Yeah. Um, and that's really true. And it, it is really scary when it, you've just built something and it doesn't work. Because for the most most part, the customers don't, don't know how it works. And it doesn't look primitive or simple to them. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, compared to your phone, what we're doing here is... Is Stone Age stuff. So uh, I do a lot of support, but I I really I really treasure it. It's it's a it's a great way to get to know how people are experiencing the kits and what problems they're having, and then most people walk away very happy, which is great.
0: Does there seem to be one problem that keeps on popping up?
1: I wish there were. It would make support a lot easier. Um, but no, I mean I I keep a list of potential problems for every kit and it's always a long list it, humans are amazing they find the most creative ways to, to do things including mess things up so
0: i saw that you, you were talking about when something doesn't work and troubleshooting the safe kit looked pretty interesting so how did that come yeah. about? yeah
1: yeah well that was an idea that um a few years ago, I did a podcast series, or just a couple podcasts with an engineer named Duncan Gray, where we did something called Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Electronics But Were Afraid to Ask. And people would submit questions, and he would answer them on the podcast. And it was really great. And somebody was asking about troubleshooting, and they asked, what can I do? You know, I'm, I'm most worried about damaging my computer, my interface, when I plug in something new. And he, being an engineer, was like, oh, well, all you need to do is um, block DC with a capacitor, put in a couple diodes to set a maximum... You know, he just gave them a circuit as if they were just going to go build it up. Um, but it planted the idea in my head of like, oh, yeah, it would be really simple to create something that makes it impossible for you to blow up your interface with a new piece of gear. And that's really what the safe kit does. It makes it so that you can... Once you've built something and you're not 110% 110 sure about it yet, plug into the safe kit and then plug that into your interface. And no matter what you've done wrong, you're not going to blow up anything, basically. So that's the idea with that.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Do you have any plans to do uh, anything in the digital domain or a hybrid analog digital?
1: Not as of now, just because there's so much yet to be done with analog in terms of kits um and it's really just it's not my my area or my passion i love the parts and i love the analog stuff um but definitely not ruling it out but no it's not in the in the near term horizon
0: i saw that you have some microphone kits as well
1: yeah well that's a that's another kind of story about the community really um i had gotten the site off the ground and was contacted almost immediately by uh, a man named archer fisher who's a latvian microphone designer and he was working on these ribbon mics and um sent me one to try out and i used it on some sessions and loved it and originally the idea was just that we would sell it i was going to help him kind of find a way to sell it fully assembled in the U S and uh, I don't really remember how much talking into him Or I talked him into it. I don't think it was very hard though. because He's obviously a DIYer himself building mics. Um, I talked him into selling it as a kit and that has been a really popular kit for almost five years now, the, the RM five ribbon microphone. And then just last year he launched a flagship, RM6 ribbon mic, which we also carry. I
0: mean, the tough part about that is the ribbon.
1: Oh, yeah. I didn't even get to the coolest part about the kit. He puts together the ribbon and tensions it in Latvia in his before he ships it to us. So the, the assembly that the customer does for that is just soldering all of it together and putting it in the case. You don't have to cut any foil or crimp it or any of that fiddly stuff.
0: Yeah. I'm close to uh, Royer. They're up the street from where I live and they're good buddies. So I go there every so often and watch what they do and how they do it. Or sometimes, you know, they'll say, well, look at this ribbon that we just got back that somebody blew up and we never thought it was possible or whatever, you know? So (laughs) I look at these ribbons and I know what they go through to make them the way they are so the microphones sound the way they do. And it's like, boy, if somebody's going to do that themselves, I don't understand how that could work, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, exactly, and that was one thing that Arthur was definitely not going to give up in terms of control, of it being his mic, was he wasn't going to ship it without listening, you know, tensioning the the motor himself.
0: Yeah, 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 that's a good deal there, that's for sure. What's the most fun thing that you do?
1: That's a great question. I don't get to do it all that often, but probably the most exhilarating thing is doing workshops. Where I bring a bunch of kits and ten people build them in front of me, and I and I walk them through it uh, because I get to see I get to see their journey, which is really fun because there's usually frustration, there's uncertainty, and then they get a few parts in and they think, okay, I'm getting this, I'm getting this, and then get to to see them plug it in and we test it and it works is. It's just always amazing to see people have that experience, and it reminds me of, oh yeah, this is this is why I'm in this game. This is why I do this. So that's the most fun thing, for sure, is doing the workshops. I I don't get to do them a ton. I mean, I I do them at um, at Ronin's retreat every year, and um, I've gone up and done them at Berkeley, and I've done them at AES sometimes in the at the potluck conference. But so only yeah, a few times. Times a year.
0: All right. Last question, Peterson. Sure. This is especially appropriate since you're a small business and, and you started from not knowing anything. And I assume you didn't know much about business when you started as well. What would be the best piece of business advice that you received from somebody or maybe you learned on your own?
1: Well, the biggest, one of the biggest aha moments for me is that all of the, you know, business is about building systems that create value for people and the best way that you can the best wisdom about value what creates value for people is from customers and it's not from asking them what they like it's a it's from seeing them interact with the products or seeing what they buy and what they don't buy so i always try to remember that the the key to success in business isn't never failing it's accelerating the process of getting stuff out and seeing whether it fails or how it fails or how it succeeds with customers as quickly as possible and then incorporating that wisdom into the process. Um, So how does that work in practice? I mean, one of the biggest things that I see that I try really hard to avoid is sitting on a product for a really long time to make it perfect and and, never, and then once it hits the market, you're so many years into it and put so much capital into it before you even had a chance to start that virtuous cycle of feedback. So um, my advice is get stuff out there. Get it in front of people and start that, that process of, of getting that customer feedback.
0: Well, that begs the question then, okay, so you get something out the door and you know it's less than perfect but you bring it out on purpose, and, and I understand that completely, and I think that's a good mm-hmm. practice. How much does it change from the time it goes out the first time until maybe you feel, oh, yes, yeah, a lot better? Does it change a lot in that period?
1: Um, well, I, I think it's like if you look at the 1176, um, what revision are we up to now? G or H? You know, there's the Rev A with the blue stripe, and it just... It just kept changing, and and they were doing exactly that process. So um, I think it depends, but in the case of, say, for us, the color palette, I mean, that was something that I released a product I was very proud of. I could have sat on it another year and and tweaked stuff, but I released something I was proud of, and then by the time the second revision came out, I had so much user feedback and and customer feedback to integrate that it, it did look significantly different, the Mark II It had a totally different control interface and that kind of thing, which I never would have arrived at just in
0: my basement. To learn more about DIY recording equipment, go to DIY recording equipment. That's all one word, DIY recording equipment, one word. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.